Oh, school's out, Miss Clara. Then blinds are drawn, night's falling. Nobody here to see if you make a mistake. You put them things down, Miss Clara, because I'm going to kiss you. I'm going to show you how simple it is. You please me, and I'll please you. I know it's troubling you. It's all those boys hollering for you there every night. And you, Lou, with her hair hanging down. And Jody with his shirt off, chasing her. Your old man at 60. He's calling on his lady love. Sticklish business anyway you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. classic cinema i'm Kristen lopez and we are doing a special bonus episode and we're doing a pretty fun episode one that is not tied up to any specific movie or theme but is just based on good old-fashioned thirst the classic film term you didn't know existed but it does and we're here to talk about it i'm joined by two amazing ladies friends of mine the fantastic diana drum and lauren humphreys brooks ladies how are you today i am good i am good <laughs> i actually amazingly enough i did not just finish watching a paul newman movie i just finished watching bed knobs and broomsticks maybe tomlinson's still cool I mean, he's not Paul Newman. Honestly, no. like, that would have changed the whole gestalt of that film. My roommate <laughs> had not seen Bed Bums and Broomsticks, and I just got Disney Plus because we have to watch Hamilton, obviously. So we watched Bed Bums and Broomsticks, and it has been a long, long time since I saw that movie. So it was fun. <laughs> Unpopular opinion I like Bed Bums and Broomsticks more than I like Mary Poppins. I do too. I absolutely do too. We were actually talking about this. The music isn't as good, but the plot itself and the animation, all of the stuff that goes into it, is more fun in a certain way. And it makes a great double feature with Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. If we're talking future episodes about good-looking classic film men, they, I have a Dick Van Dyke episode <laughs> sitting in my back pocket, oh, just yeah. waiting to be discussed. Future oh, yeah. idea. Diana Drum, how are you? I'm doing okay. Just that awkward pause of like, what is life? For this podcast, I watched a double of HUD and Slapshot. So I'm in a very happy place. You've been watching a lot of Paul Newman stuff because I have been talking to you about it before we set up this episode. And I feel you are part of the problem. Pretty much invited both of you because you're part of the problem. I was just actually talking to Emma Myers earlier today about it. I'm just oh, how we're doing, and blah, blah, blah. And then I just wound up being like, you know what helps me? Paul Newman. Paul Newman being attractive. If you're, like, having an anxiety attack, panic attack, generally the chaos that is now, a good escape is just Paul Newman. If you haven't figured it out, listeners, we are doing an all-Paul Newman episode. Because why not? <laughs> Actually, no. There's backstory to this. There's a lot of backstory to this. And we're going to start at the beginning and then work our way to today. So this all started when I told Lauren Humphreys Brooks, I think about, what, a year ago? Something like that. I remember this conversation. It was a conversation that culminated with me saying, I don't get Paul Newman. 
Yeah, what? Exactly, what exactly. What <laughs> <laughs> the hell? I didn't get the appeal. I did not understand anything. And I what? was happy on my little island where I did not know things. That's where I had made my home for several years. What have you seen before? <laughs> like, um, I don't understand. I think I had seen Cool Hand Luke and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. So those were what oh. I was, was working with prior to. I think I'd seen The Color of Money, too. I think the only concession I had made on this prior to was that, oh, okay, old Paul Newman is odd. I could go with that, but nothing before. Like, that was the line. So Lauren told me that I needed to watch Long Hot Summer, and if I could sit through that and not change my mind, then I was dead inside. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because seriously, I've actually shown that film to numerous people. And each time, like, it's just been like, oh, yeah, Paul Newman's hot. Yeah, definitely, whatever. And then they say, like, oh, my God. Oh, what? wait, wait, no, wait, what just happened? There is just something about him in that film. If you don't think that Paul Newman's hot, you have to see that movie. No, there's just steam and charisma and glistening and the blue eyes. And when he doesn't have a shirt and he's holding a pillowcase. <laughs> this and he's is standing out on her balcony. <laughs> <laughs> that was a movie that I watched probably first time when I was like nine or 10, when I was just grasping the idea of men being attractive. It was like Labyrinth for you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Because I went through a big Tennessee Williams stud phase, a little young. Long Hot Summer, and then Streetcar Named Desire, Sweet Bird of Youth. So just a lot of inappropriately attractive men for a young girl. <laughs> <laughs> that combined with him on David Letterman over the years and just how much fun his personality is and then the Newman's own and I'm getting way too ahead of ourselves. There's just so much combined <laughs> and again the blue eyes no matter what age. Did you guys ever see Message in a Bottle? <laughs> Unfortunately yes I have. I saw it ages ago. Ages ago. I hardly remember that movie. Did you see it in theaters? Because I did. Oh, I'm so sorry for you. I did not. I saw it at home so I could make fun of it. I remember seeing the poster of it at Six Flags, and this was during my, like, ooh, Paul Newman. And then watching that and being like, oh, wait, he's an older man. And I just realized that he's in that now that you bring that up. Shows how memorable the movie was. <laughs> to get back into my story, I said, okay, I'll do this, because what's going to change? Lauren Humphreys Brooks ruined my entire life. Mine is very upset. That is great. It's great because that movie has ruined many, many lives. Just like, well, now I have abnormal expectations about men. Great. I believe that 2020 went off the rails the way it did after I saw that. Like, I'm pretty sure that's why this year has gone the way it is because of that movie. I watched that and then I was like, okay. Stuff feels different now. And I started watching other movies. And now, if you look at my letterbox, it is just a mess. Paul Newman movies. And I read a whole biography. I read several hundred pages. And now I feel like I'm part of it at a club that I did not necessarily want to be in. I don't know how I feel about it. So thank you, Lauren. Thank you so very much. You're welcome. Which biography did you read? I read this Sean Levy one. 
I have a copy of that and I've not read it yet. And actually today I was trying to find it and I failed. It's definitely decent. Sean Levy, if you don't know, generally wrote a lot of biographies about cool dudes. He's also known as the guy who wrote the biography, The Rat Pack. He's also written recently about the Chateau Marmont. Most of his biographies are about cool, exclusive clubs you'll never be in. His Newman looks pretty good. Maybe because Paul Newman's life is just really boring. There's nothing particularly salacious or scandalous in it, aside from the fact that it talks about that he definitely might have kind of sort of engaged in a brief affair while making Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but that's like based off of one chick that claims that she slept with everybody in Hollywood at that time, so I'm not sure no. how, how accurate that is. No, no, he, he, he was married to John Woodward. That is the great Hollywood love story. You do not fuck with that. Uh-uh. Right. No, was, not happening. It was 50 years plus, and he has been frequently quoted as why would I go for burger when I have steak at home? Yeah. I'm misquoting that terribly because I don't have it Sean right Levy said it. He reported it. You are definitely welcome to reach out to him and ask him what the hell he was thinking and saying those things. It's a pretty good biography. I mean, I read all of it, so it must have been doing something. I've dived into a lot of movies I did not expect to watch this year. Well, where did you go from Long Hot Summer? I'm just curious your trajectory of movies. Oh, gosh. Thankfully, TCM shows a lot of movies. I own The Long Hot Summer now on Blu-ray, which I would pull out right now if I had it handy. So thank you. I also gave Twilight Time my money and bought a copy of this, as well as From the Terrace, which I have not watched yet, but I have it. After that, I'm tr- before that, I had seen The Verdict. So I had seen that, and I'd seen oh Color of Money. God. So I started with Old Newman, and then... The Long Hot Summer happened, and I was like, what is this thing? But I'd also seen The Sting before that. I would say that's slightly leathered Newman. That's not old Newman. That's like, (laughs) he's had whiskey. That's him. He's aging. He's aging like a fine wine. He's like a Beaujolais Nouveau. Now he's getting a little bit older. We're getting into the Pinot Noir years, almost. I watched HUD, which was probably not the best A to B trajectory. Oh, that is- that was the trajectory I went. That flower, man. (laughs) That's the disturbing thing about HUD, is that he is so fucking sexy. And then you're just like, oh my god, he's horrible, but also wow, but also horrible, but also wow. <laughs> like being attracted to a cis man, that's the name of the game right there. Is like, ooh, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> it's like, no, why must I feel like this? And why are they terrible, but they're really attractive? <laughs> I don't know what to do. <laughs> and then I can tell you from after that, I did The Hustler. Sweet Bird of Youth and The Young Philadelphia. So that's what I've been. Have you seen What a Way to Go? No, not yet. Oh my god. You have Shirley MacLaine and it's a farce and she's a woman who marries multiple times. I'm not going to spoil all of it, but he's one of the husbands. And he's like avant-garde kooky artist in Paris who's rejecting commercialism. He has a friend <laughs> monkey. He has machines that do his art. And he's all part of the scene, man. That's and the best description of a movie that I've ever heard. That's on the list now. <laughs> <laughs> so yesterday, Cat on a Hunting Roof was on, and I did re-watch it, which mm. I had not watched it since I had seen it in the before times. It's definitely good. It's still not my favorite 
mostly because we all know how homoerotic that movie is, but it tries so hard to be straight. Oh, especially with like the last line, close the door. Just the way he delivers yeah. it is like the most, I'm gonna jump your bones sexual. That movie is more her movie than it is his movie. I think it's more Elizabeth Taylor than him at any point. She's really great, but I think that ends up undermining his performance. It's, it's really funny. I think in the Sean Levy biography, he talks almost derisively about, you could tell the movies that he really hated making, which was like most of them, because he didn't try. I don't know if that's necessarily a fair statement. What do you guys think, having seen more than I have? I don't think that's fair. It's the whole thing where he started as an actor. He's a Shaker Heights, Ohio boy. Yeah. He was in the army. He went to Kenyon College, got kicked off the football team, wound up acting. He said it was a whole thing of just a series of little accidents that led him into acting and having success at acting. Every time that I've listened to an interview with him, he was on Dick Cavett in 1970. I found this 1964 interview that looks like it's from Swedish television, where he talks about the actor's studio. And he speaks very seriously in terms of how he's a very cerebral actor, which a lot of times by critics gets misconstrued. It's like if somebody's in a role and dedicated to it, it doesn't necessarily read on screen as well as it would have in the theater. That no. ties into method, the method yeah. stigma of that time period too. Oh, totally. You could be a very unkind critic in a way of saying something along the lines of that he was just there meeting his mark, saying his lines, getting out. But I also think there's a lot more going on there that maybe didn't necessarily translate as much as in his later work because you grow, you mature, you learn. And especially when you're using like film and camera as a medium, as an actor. Lauren, what do you think? I'm trying to think about any film that I've seen him in, and I haven't seen every single one of his films, but I'm trying to think about any film that I've seen him in where he, he seems to be phoning it in. I can't think of one. I can't go, yeah, he's not really dedicated to that role or anything like that. There are definitely films that demand more of him as an actor, and I think that HUD demands a lot of him as an actor. Something like Long Hot Summer or Cat on a Hot Chin Rip demands slightly less simply because of the role that he's forced to occupy. One of the issues with Cat on a Hot Chin Rip is that you do have this tension between the actual play and what the play represents and what they're allowed to do. Correct. In, in Hollywood. <laughs> and so you've got this whole thing about this guy who is refusing to have sex with a very young and attractive Elizabeth Taylor. You're kind of like, what's going on here exactly? You do get a little bit of that homoerotic subtext running through it. And in his relationship with Gip, his Skipper. Skipper, yeah, yeah, his football buddy, right? You get a little bit of that, but they try to make it into his jealousy over her versus actually his attraction to Skipper. So I think that as a result, the film feels a little bit uneven because the film and Newman and really everybody in the film wants to do what the play actually does, but the film is not really allowed to do that. It comes off as a little weird. Like I say, I've seen him in comedies, I've seen him in dramas. I cannot think of a film where I was like, oh no, he's not there in this role. He's not a part of this role. 
The only one I can think of that I have not actually seen, I know that Paul Newman didn't like it as much, was Silver Chalice. His first yeah. big movie. That he like regrets it. Dick Cavan, Dave Letterman. Generally, it's like a go-to punchline of like, oh, the Silver Chalice. What's well, a like, bad movie? So it might be his one borderline himbo stand-in role. It's one of those big, that kind of pageantry classic Hollywood film. I was going to say, um, I think most people regret doing the biblical epics that they made <laughs> throughout the 50s and 60s. I mean, does anybody ever come out of a biblical epic during this time period being praised? Tony Curtis and Spartacus? Yeah, it's Tony <laughs> Curtis, Kirk Douglas. Curtis had the robe. <laughs> he was Richard Burton. He can't do wrong. That's impossible. <laughs> Newman as an actor doesn't fit into those kinds of roles. Those are very classical Hollywood roles. Weirdly enough, Tony Curtis actually does fit into those roles. Kirk Douglas, in his own way, fits into those roles. Newman, you're just like, no, it seems like he's out of place. It's like um, when Marlon Brando did Julius Caesar and he's playing yeah. Mark Antony. And you're just like, this doesn't make sense. His style of acting does not fit into those parts. See, Marlon Brando as Mark Antony is why I watch Julius Caesar. So. Well, that's why most people watch Julius Caesar, because you're like, this is interesting and he's not bad or anything but just the acting styles and the film style clash yeah. so heavily it's not quite like fourth wall breaking but it is that sort of thing where it reaches like a different film different plane one could argue reaches for the sublime i agree that it's just you have typical hollywood drama romans with english accents fair then you get marlon brando on a completely different wavelength we could digress into a whole Marlon Brando thing of like that's kind of his go-to thing of just being on a completely different wavelength. I'd say thing. Marlon Brando in a musical, Guys and Dolls, is far more jarring to me than <laughs> anything else. I love that movie though. I absolutely love that it's, movie. It's entertaining, but he should not ever sing ever. It's Especially a great not curiosity project though. Sorry, not to talk over, but it's just that thing of. You don't have Marlon Brando next to Frank Sinatra singing. No. Right? Right? No. So I do want to bring up, because the long hot summer is what brought us all here. It's the patient zero of ruining my life. And it's a movie that I appreciate and enjoy outside of all of that. Because it's got that Faulkner-esque, you know, we talk about Tennessee Williams with Cat on a Haunted Roof and having to soften a lot of his themes. And with Faulkner, you'd think that you'd have to have the same issues, although Faulkner was talking about different things, but subtext still lingers so heavily. But this is a movie that in 1958, and we could say this pretty much about most Paul Newman movies during this time period, that are excessively horny for the studio <laughs> era. Because The Long Hot Summer is not necessarily, it's about a lot of people getting laid in different ways, whether it's Joanne Woodward being chased and virginal and not putting out, or poor Anthony Franciosa, who, if they ever want to make a Shelley Winters, Tony Franciosa, Liz and Dick-esque story, I would be so down for it, because if y'all want to hear about a messy relationship, oh, they're my favorite. Um, but, like, he's all totally cast adrift, because, like, Paul Newman's Viral, and then poor, poor Tony Franciosa is married to Lee Remick, who's like kind of the town 
trollop um like men are literally catcalling her from the streets like at, at night at their house and he's just like i have nothing to offer this relationship he can't essentially have sex because he's all gets up in his head and he's like i can't i can't do this um and then you have you know what is it orson wells his weird relationship with angie lansbury who is just flat out wasted in this movie but this is such a movie about who's getting laid and who can't get laid. It is just bananas. That, I did not mean to make the subtext out of that comment, but it's true. So, yeah. Um, Lori, I'm the crux. Or isn't that the crux of all great art? That, that it's bananas? Yes. <laughs> or no, that, it, that it's about who can get laid and who can't. Like, it's the whole That's thing. That's a good point. Like, not to quote 30 Rock too much, but it's that thing of, you know, why do men build ships? Why do they uh, construct buildings? Yada, yada, yada. It's to get women. Like, it's to, like, you create <laughs> in order to build. <laughs> like, that is the drive. <laughs> That's so I'm, why putting, so I'm putting Lauren on the spot. What do you have to say for, for putting this movie into my life and its discussion of just being horned up for two hours. <laughs> I I mean, yeah, I, I <laughs> I'm gonna try to try to like do I, should I give a really serious, more academic answer and everything. I, no. I think that, you know, we we've talked about on Twitter, we talked about on Citizen Dame, we've talked about in all kinds of places about the female gaze and about the way that cameras look at, at men and um and the way that cameras look at women also but one one of the things that i think that you actually get in the long hot summer is one of the early an early example of what the female gaze is the way that the camera looks at paul newman in particularly um and in a certain sense the camera is taking the position of uh and the audience is taking the position of joanne woodward in that film that you're looking at him and you're like okay here's the you know the famous the famous scene where he's on the balcony and he's shirtless and he's sweating and it's this incredibly hot night and she's inside you know underneath all of her blankets you know you can't get more kind of obvious i mean in terms of the subtext it's not really subtext at that point um, and, it's you know, he's, it's just full and, on. Yeah, and he's just standing there shirtless and gorgeous and calling to her, you know? And and he knows, and that's the thing, that so much of that movie is about that he knows how attractive he is. He knows what he's doing. And she knows it too. And that's part of the, that's part of the tension between the two of them. That there, there's this constant push that she wants, you know, it's that kind of, she wants to give in. She wants to to be with him. She wants to, you know, run out onto the balcony and, and basically be like her brother and his wife. Um, but she also has this repression and that she's trying to kind of suppress that. And she doesn't know he's dangerous. She, you know, is he a, a criminal? Is he like trying to take over her father's land? All of this stuff. Um, but the way the camera really does put the audience in her position in that tension about what his motives are and also how incredibly attractive he is. Uh, and so I, I think that that's part of it, that, yeah, you, f you feel that kind of energy that is boiling underneath the surface the entire time. And the, the film even talks about it. I mean, they talk about the fact that this is, you know, it's a, it's a hot summer, all of the boys are out calling to the girls, you know, um, uh, they're, the, uh, 
Joanne Woodward's brother and his wife are chasing each other around. Her father's off, like, having an affair with Angela Lansbury for some reason. You know, all of that stuff is going on. And, and, his, and the, the Newman character, Ben Quick's point, is you should be doing this too, baby, basically. And why don't you want to do this with me? And, and literally, the entire audience is going like, yes, why? Why would you not want to do that? <laughs> It's, it's the biggest problem that I have with, and I had this before, but it's the biggest problem I have with The Color of Money as a, as a film, because I have a really hard time buying that Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, who is the female lead in, in The Color of Money, would essentially give up everything for the loser that is Tom Cruise's character that's not Fast Eddie Felsen, but it is, cause it's a kind of quasi-remake sequel to The Hustler. So that's my biggest issue when I watch that movie is I'm like, no, no, what is, what is Tom Cruise offering? And I feel bad, we have, we have Lauren here, but if this was a Citizen Dame episode, Karen, who was also on that show, would be very upset that I'm disparaging Tom Cruise, but you will never get me to believe that he is the right choice at the end of that movie, that she should just, she needs to go off with, with Paul Newman's character because he's way more awesome and his hair's not stupid because it's 1980 something in that movie um but i also think that the long hot summer gets a bit more appreciation if you know that him and joanne woodward were pretty much married what by the end of filming that movie they yeah they got like that they got uh he got a divorce from his first wife and then they got married after and like they had they had met i think what was it four years before when he, which play, he was in a play where, like, I think it was Picnic, actually. He did Picnic, yeah, which, which knowing yeah. that just makes me a little mad about the movie that we ended up with. No disrespect to Bill Holden, but yeah. Bill Holden looks about 20 years older than the character should in that movie, um, and I feel like only one would have been really great. Um, but yeah, it was the thing where what Joanne Woodward was the under was an understudy. I forget for which character, but so it's like they they had met, but they didn't actually have a romance until later. And like so, it's that thing where it's like all that built up tension that we were just talking about is just like not to be too metatextual, not to read too much into the artist's private lives, but one could read a lot into that of just like the tension in the air, the method, the everything. Well, I think Joanne Woodward also has that great story that she didn't like the fact that he was, it, it was a million degrees when they were filming and that he didn't sweat and that he was too perfect. And I kind of really dig that story because Joanne Woodward always got flack for not being the glamorous girl. You know, she was, she was a lot plainer and had a different look than most of the actresses of the late 50s, early 60s. And I, in, in the Levy biography, at least, people said, you know, there was a lot of like, what's going on there that he would marry this, especially because his first wife, I, they said, was, was really beautiful. Like, it was almost like a downgrade for him to, to marry Joanne Woodward compared to wife number one. And I'm always like, yeah, because she could see that he was like, way too perfect and she didn't call him out on she like probably called him out on that regularly like i appreciate that yeah and then also you see it's just as somebody who has creeped on the two of them a lot that like going through pinterest and like going through the photos <laughs> of them together 
and all that. It's just, you see him like just very appreciative of her form and her physique and just very, like, I'm just specifically thinking this one photo where I think it's during the summer and they're at like a beach table and she's sit, she's standing holding or just standing there and he has his arms out like shaping her hips and just looking like thirst and like at her hips <laughs> and it's just great. <laughs> no, it's just like, and it's, just, it's just, or I think hunger, I think hunger is the better word. That he just looks like a hungry caveman looking at her hips and you're just kind of there to like, <laughs> I get the charisma between these two. Like, I, like, and again, I'm, I'm referring mostly to, like, earlier in their marriage, like, in the 60s, like, I'm thinking, um, oh, the movie A New Kind of Love. Have you guys seen it? Oh, it's so good. And it's this whole thing where, I think, he, what, did he direct it or write it or something? No, that doesn't sound right. I um, think anyway, so. Yeah, yeah I, it's the thing where, what was it? He, it's, it's a rom-com cheesy setup of him being a sports writer and she's a tomboy fashion reproducer like as in she goes to pair like she goes to like Macy's and stuff and then reproduce or she goes to higher fashion houses and then reproduces it for her bargain store and anyways yada 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 goes to Paris where then things get a bit funky and at some point he mistakes her for a high-end prostitute and then that's the beginning of the romance and like <laughs> yeah it's it's very like it's in it's in a similar vein to um uh, sex and the single girl things like that yeah i was gonna say it um, sounds like a it sounds like a tracy hepburn movie almost almost yeah it's it's got but it's got that night it's that 1960s sort of um you know we're gonna talk about sex but not really not completely <laughs> um uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that I saw that movie once, but I, I do agree that the two oh, of them are... <laughs> are you just, it's one of, it's one of those that again, when I was going through like my early Newman discovery phase, I watched that as a kid at way too formative of a point that I thought it was so romantic and I thought it was so like so many different levels without, because I... I was at that age where I thought I knew things, but it turned out I did not know any of the subtext. So it was that thing where, you know, when he's like romancing and then she's there getting all dolled up and like, I th and like at some point Maurice Chevalier pops in and does a whole song and dance and like encourages her pretty much to get laid. That it's like, it's this whole thing of, um, it's just like on on the surface for like, a tween, young tween, it was cute and just like, oh, it's all bubbly and there's champagne and she goes blonde and all that stuff. And then as an adult watching it, you're just kind of like, oh, I see what they're doing here. I see the metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exa exactly. Exactly. It's that very 1960s sort of sex comedy where we're going to talk about sex, but not really talk about sex. We're going to talk about prostitution, but not quite talk about prostitution, you know, that kind of thing. But, yeah. but to go back to yeah, the, the chemistry that they have on screen is exactly the same kind of chemistry that you're talking about that they, that, you know, his, that's, I think, one of the great things about The Long Hot Summer. And again, you know, as you talk about it as a female gaze sort of film, it does like the he wants her like and you can feel that and so here she is and she's doing everything she possibly can to repel him basically she's just like i'm not interested in you i don't want to have sex i'm not having sex this is not going to happen get off of my balcony you attractive shirtless man like 
all of it. You know, she pushes, she pushes him away at every possible way. And he's just like, no, I want you. And it is very sexy. And also in talking about it, they're just like, this is probably bad message to be sending, but also, uh, I mean, if, if you are Paul Newman, but yet their, their chemistry together in that film is so intense and it's on both sides. It isn't like her being like, oh my God, this gorgeous man. It's also him being like, oh my God, this remarkable woman that I have to be with, you know? And you get that sensation in that film. I think well, that's one of the reasons why the film is so sexy. It's, it's ironic because, you know, you think, of, you think of his closest contemporary at the time, which was Robert Redford, and I say this is somebody who is not seeing Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I'm working Neither on it. I'm working on it. Okay, it's a long movie. <laughs> but I will get to it. Uh, but but I mean, if you if you look at the two of them, I think it's always fascinating because Robert Redford, as much as he was also impossibly created in a lab, good looking, you will never get me to believe that that man's chromosomes weren't created medically somewhere but he's he always had that persona of being deferential to women respectful like romantic but not the sexual figure i mean you think of something like the way we were and he almost he literally you know has to have sex with barbara streisand because he's passed out you know there's not really necessarily this like sense of active pursuit unless it's something like maybe indecent proposal where the movie wants you to think that he's a villain, and again, that's a movie where character makes another terrible choice, and I don't understand how that relationship doesn't work out. Um, but, oh my god, oh, sorry, because uh, what I was thinking is that you hit the nail on the head in terms of, it's that Robert Redford persona that, like, again, it's like sometimes critics think of, like, cool or distant in his acting, but it works in the sense of, like, his romantic persona on screen it's very passive and cool and not predatory. Yes. So it's that thing of he's not sleazy, which is really refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, even when Robert Redford's playing a cad, you know, there's this niceness to it and this charm. He's just, I think of something like Inside Daisy Clover, which I know Diana and I both love. You know, yeah. he, he totally screws over, both literally and figuratively, Natalie Wood, but the character is just so likable, and you find out later that he might possibly have issues with his sexuality, that he's an idiot. You're just like, oh, I can't stay mad at you. You don't know what you do. Like, you just wreck stuff, and you feel really bad about it, but that's just who you are. You know, there's nothing necessarily malicious in it. Um, when Paul Newman wrecks stuff in a movie, it's definitely, definitely horrible, uh, which, which brings me to, to HUD, um, which <laughs> I watched, and, I mean, compared to The Long Hot Summer, which was just a couple, couple years before that, and I mean, I know The Hustler's in there, too, which The Hustler's a great movie, um, he's good in it, but I think that's Shirley Knight's movie, and not enough appreciation goes to her performance, and it's Shirley Knight in that movie, right? Or am I confusing it with, no, that's Sweeper to you. Who's the girl in The Hustler, the, whose name I can't remember right now? Um, well, of course, like, my head goes to Jackie Gleason, so that's not helpful. 
It's, it's Piper Lori. Excuse me. Excuse me. Yeah, oh, Piper Lori. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I was just like, oh yeah, Jackie Gleason is the guy. I was just like, wait a minute. You're like, Jackie Gleason might be the girl. I mean, I don't know. Um, Jackie Gleason is the romantic interest in Muslim. Isn't he? Isn't he really, though? I mean, yeah, I mean, let's talk about it. Let's uh, talk about it. <laughs> I, I mean, I know the Hustler, yeah, is in there, too. I, I feel like Piper Laurie kind of, again, overshadows because her arc is so tragic in that movie compared to everything else. But um, HUD is just, A, it's a movie that coming in the early 60s when movies were slowly transitioning into that more authentic realism and the death of the classic star persona, but you still had that we have to ignore the Vietnam War, so we have a lot of peppy surf movies and stuff still going on. Like, HUD is an unrepentant, horrific tale of a guy, like, I think it's aged too well, unfortunately, watching it, because you're like, oh, it's the story of this guy who is a kind of rapist and totally hate you know is is out to get everything for himself and doesn't care who he screws over and pretty much ends the movie succeeding you know he just goes off with his life and you're like that's there's no punishment for him and it it feels way too much like reality but i think that that really works especially with the fact that the he's teamed up with uh patricia neal who, if we're talking leading ladies that aren't Joanne Woodward that he's really good with, I think Patricia Neal kind of takes the cake, especially considering the hard life she would have after this movie and kind of leading up to it with medical issues and the death of a child and being married to Roald Dahl. Uh, but, I mean, she's just so great. Everybody's really good in that movie, which is pretty much the story of, like, the death of morals. <laughs> Yeah, well, like, it's just, like, it's such a strong quintessential American epic of, you know, it's that mid-20th century power of the wills between good and, like, I, and I'm saying this in terms of, like, Melvin Douglas's character is, like, representative of, like, quote-unquote values. And then you have Paul Newman being the very self-interested, don't give a damn except for what I want character and it's like you have those two battling like I haven't read the original novel but it or the source material but it's the whole like having those two perspectives and then the from what I gather with the novel is that it was more about the Melvin Douglas character but then when they adapted it for screen they turned it much more into about HUD so it was that so it like becomes this whole other perspective of again it's like good versus evil but within the american spirit i don't like and just the way that it's shot and it's definitely of a certain school of like it captures that sort of not quite like i kind of i would kind of put it almost like in a john ford sphere of like again it's like it's the west it's speaking on morals you have very but at the same time you have hud being a very clear anti-hero so i think you're very right in terms of like it's an interesting transition point from old school hollywood what we would consider classic hollywood and then the birth of new hollywood like it's it could be like a really interesting hinge point of that and it's like you have like paul newman carries it with his performance that is so earthy and visceral but it's not i don't know it's 
it's still a little understated relatively. You know, it's not him shrieking against walls or anything. It's him being just very brash, very direct, very confident, very cocky. But like it works within the large, like the, uh, like the open air of it all. I think it's such an interesting poem because at least for me in watching it for the first time, there's this constant feeling that something was going to happen to, to change him, that he was going to repent, right? That there was going to be this moment where, you know, whether it's his father's death, whether it's, you know, dealing with the past, the past of his brother's death, you know, something was going to crack and he was going to become better. He was going, there was going to be a redemption story somewhere in it. And at each point in that film, he gets this chance to be redeemed, right? He can change, he can alter his, his perspective on life. He can decide to deal with some of these things, but his own character and, and not just that, and the kind of character that his father imposes on him. His father basically sets up a, a paradigm where he has to be the villain. He has to be the, he can never equal what his father wants him to be. He can never become what his father wants him to be. And as a result, you get this, this culture clash that's going on. And you do get it in the person of Paul Newman, who's this big new Hollywood star, and Melvin Douglas, who is an old Hollywood star, right? And, and you have this clash going on. And basically, it's never going, nothing is ever going to be solved as a result. I don't completely agree that he isn't punished in the end. I think that he is in the sense that he has to live with himself. Um, he loses everything that actually matters, that actually should matter to him. He, he loses his soul. Um, so he loses his nephew, he loses his father, he loses this woman that he might have had some kind of an emotional connection to. He loses all that, everybody leaves him. And all that he's left with is exactly this world that he has created for himself. And he's, so he wins, but he doesn't really win because this is not something, this isn't something you can really win at. No, no. And I think that when I talk about the, when we talk about the changes from old Hollywood to new, I think the key element of that is like, there's no bad seed-esque strike of lightning to smote him at the end. You know, there's no grand divine comeuppance to make him see the error of his ways. And I think that that speaks a lot towards the transitions in Hollywood, that like internal guilt is supposed to be punishment enough as opposed to the more overt retribution that we have been seeing in movies for so long. That had to be, I, I would love to talk to people who saw HUD in the theaters in 1963. It feels like it would be very jarring for them to be raised on movies that reminded you that like bad guys are killed at the end always and at the end of this movie that does not happen you just hope that maybe one day his character will see the light but as we've seen with most you know bad men out in the world like maybe not I, yeah and I, and I don't think that it's necessarily that maybe he's going to see the light if he was going to it would have happened at that kind of point right but that something has died in him and that it's something that he can never obtain again and, and in a certain sense he knows it and he wants that thing that's what he's reaching for I think throughout the entire film and he never quite gets there partially because of his own personality and his his own hang-ups and partially because of other things that have happened around him and so it's almost tragic in that sense that he's very he, he's 
he's a difficult character because he is completely unlikable. He is completely unredeemed at the end. And, and I do think that those kinds of films, we are set up to be like, at some point, he is going to find redemption, right? At some point, something is going to fix him. Something is going, or he's going to be punished for it. And we don't get either of those things. Um, we don't, so we don't get that bolt of lightning, but we also don't get, you know, oh, actually, you know, I'm going to change my ways because I've, I've divested myself of the guilt of my brother's death or something like that. Um, and, and it's a very tragic ending in a lot of ways because he, he is completely destitute, essentially, uh, from, from the perspective of his own person, right? Even if he might make money, but that's not going to mean anything, ultimately, and he's going to be deeply unhappy. When he also said that most of the scripts that he got were either The Hustler or this, which has to be frustrating that you, but at the same time, I think what sticks out about watching his movies in this rapid succession that I have, and also watching Hamilton relatively recently too, is the emphasis on like class and social climbing that his movies discussed so fervently. I think of you know, The Young Philadelphians is not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it perfectly fits that kind of, I think, what is it, late 50s, right around the same time as Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and The Long Hot Summer, but this emphasis on being born a certain way and wanting to be more privileged than you are. I mean, his character spends the entire movie, A, being told that he's a, a son of privilege, because his dad is Adam West, uh, which is very funny. In one scene, you hear Adam West before he ends up being killed because he might be gay. A lot of gayness in Paul Newman movies that are really fascinating to also talk about. Um, but, but then, at the same time, he's still never good enough because of these series of impossible standards. And you see that in stuff like The Long Hot Summer and um, Sweet Bird of Youth, too. And I think that's really intriguing because I, I don't know a lot of other actors whose work really presented them regularly as a person who was not good enough because of an arbitrary list of societal mores. What? Like, this could be a big, big stretch, but it's almost the whole thing of Clark Gable playing newspapermen getting near the heiress and screwball comedies. I could see that, yeah. Yeah, that's like, it's that transition of kind of like, you could, you could argue in a way that this was evolving from that, of like having the every man that someone roots for going in a circumstance that is beyond means, that it's the, like, but instead of having it being completely farcical in a comedy, it's transitioned into an attempted social realism with drama. That, in theory... I can I can see that. That sounds that sounds good. That sounds better than what I had. So <laughs> I, I think I think that a lot. I think that the difference is that this is generational, and um, yeah. and so that that's part of what's happening is that and and I do think that that some of this is about the tension between new Hollywood and old Hollywood. That Hollywood itself is changing, and the way that that American movies are made is changing. Um, and so you've got these young actors who are much more elemental, right, for lack of a better term. So you have like James Dean and Marlon Brando and Paul Newman and Robert Redford and all of these guys who are very different kinds of actors to, to people like Clark Gable or Melvin Douglas. And, and a lot of those films represent that culture clash in a lot of ways, that you've got these, the fathers who are 
or the older generation who are the who are much more staid, who are much more within this hierarchy. And you've got these young men and young women who are pushing to break out of it, but also aware that they can't break out of it. And so that's part of what's developing in in all of that is that they're they're fighting with each other. And ultimately the old is going to be destroyed simply because of age. Like and but it's a question of what is going to replace it. And that's sort Newman kind of represents that tension in a lot of ways. We did get a question from from a listener uh, at Kathy Sh underscore short asked, do you think that Cool Hand Luke features one of his weakest performances? I've only seen it once and it was in the before time. Um, and I remember not, <laughs> I remember not necessarily liking it. I wonder how, because I think oh, that movie's very parodied in popular culture. You know, if you've, it's one of those films where even if you've never seen it, you know the beats of it. Um, so I didn't really enjoy a lot of it. You know, it's it's a very, for me, the, the beats of humor just were a little jarring, but I probably would have to judge it again, um, having seen so many movies, but I remember not, not liking it. So I would tentatively say yes, but that's purely because of a lack of, of freshness on my part. What do you two think? Well, I, I, I still think Silver Chalice is the... <laughs> we'll never get our Silver leaving, Chalice. Leaving aside Silver Chalice, let's just... Uh... I was like, I still haven't seen it, but like, if we're going to talk about extremes of worst and like what, what the lowest bar is, it's like, I think we have Silver Chalice is probably the lowest bar. And again, this is completely... I, I haven't seen it properly, um, but just in terms of reputation. And then I, cause like Cool Hand Luke, I watched again during my formative tween years that like it didn't quite speak to me then. And I haven't, I, I watched it maybe like a year or two ago and I appreciated it more, but also it's not one that I would seek out versus like, the verdict, or Slapshot, or Long Hot Summer, or uh, just there are so many more that I would want to watch and rewatch, and then I'd watch yearly. You know, I feel, I feel like, like I had watched in years, and like right? I rewatched it, and it was so great. And that was one that I would have put in a similar category of like, oh, I watched it, I appreciate it at the time, I wouldn't necessarily revisit it. But then I revisited today and I'm like, oh, this is amazing. So then therefore, like, I might feel the same with Cool Hand Luke. Yeah. I feel <laughs> like this might be a stretch to say, but I feel too that the emphasis on Cool Hand Luke is being like a guy's movie. You know, mm. it's always one of those movies that I know that when I started doing film criticism, not a day went by that I didn't get some dude being like, you have to watch this movie. And it was specifically men that would bring it up. So I, I wonder too how much that factors in because we've been talking so much about Newman through this kind of female lens that I feel like that film feels almost exclusively like a boys club of a movie. Well, it's the Steve McQueen of Paul Newman's filmography. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good way of putting it. <laughs> It, no, but it is. I mean, speaking of homoeroticism, uh, 
Cool Hand Luke, it's really gay, guys. Like, it's a really, really gay movie. I just want everybody to know that. <laughs> All of the men listening, it's a gay, gay movie. <laughs> oh, you're gonna get some really fun replies. <laughs> I'm gonna get some great feedback about this episode. <laughs> but it is. It is, because it's all about the men being in love with Cool Hand Luke. Like, that's what the story is. Um, but no, I, actually, I do. I, cool Hand Luke, I think, is overrated. Uh, I, and I hate saying that about movies. But I actually do think that that's true. Like, it's, it isn't his most interesting performance. It isn't his most exciting. He doesn't... It, I think the film itself has problems outside of Paul Newman. Like, it's, it isn't really about his performance. His performance is good. But the film, it's, is overlong. It, it doesn't have a great arc. Like, it, it, has, it has issues that are, are beyond that. But in terms of his actual performance, I don't, I don't think that there's anything in it that really makes it stand out in terms of anything else that he did. Um, you know, if we're going to talk about a guy's movie, HUD is very much a guy's movie in a lot of ways. It's a Western, it's, you know, violent, it's got all of this stuff in it. <laughs> but all that there... subtext and feelings. Yeah, no, but... Feelings, but so many feelings! <laughs> I do think that Newman is actually a very elemental actor, and it is very, uh, very much an emotional actor. A lot of his performances are about emotion or repressed emotion. And one of the issues that you get with Cool Hand Luke is that there really isn't that much emotion to, to the story itself. There's a lot of external stuff going on, but it's not really about him as a person in any sense. And, and so, yeah, so I, I would, I mean, I don't know if it's his weakest performance. I think he's fine in it. I just think that the film itself gets too much attention and a part of it might be because of this boys club issue. Speaking, you brought up overrated. What are the movies that we would say are underrated? New Kind of Love. Because no one wants <laughs> I was no waiting for you to say the silver chalice. <laughs> <laughs> the silver chalice. <laughs> the silver chalice. Oh, cinema. Um, oh, great cinema. The French appreciate it. Um, no, um, no, I, I do, like, I feel like New Kind of Love is something that gets looked over when it should kind of fall into like the sex comedies of the 60s, like the classic ones we watch, like even the Doris Day Rock Hudson ones. Like it's just, it's really fun. It's like, I don't know if you guys have seen like Goodbye Charlie with uh, Debbie Reynolds, Tony Curtis, Walter Matthau. That's another one people should watch. But it's this whole genre of like the end of studio Ness of like, oh, we're gonna do you know 60s sex romps, and there's gonna be all this mod colors, and ooh, we're gonna talk about like gender and like all this stuff, and like ooh, battle of the sexes, and like it's just really fun. Like I feel like more, I, and again, I I look at it with very rose tinted glasses of like they're two very attractive people, and Joanne Woodward is a tomboy who gets a makeover and gets Paul Newman. So like I could be projecting way too much into it, but I feel like more people need to watch it. <laughs> um, for me, I mean, I, I mentioned the Young Philadelphians, which I think is, is a really, really melodramatic movie, but it's certainly a fun one. And it has a stacked freaking cast of people 
uh, Barbara Rush is still with us and uh, utterly, utterly beautiful, and she's really great. Uh, it's got Alexa Smith. It's got a pre-parent trap, Brian Keith. Billy Burke in one of her last movies is in this. Um, and it you get to see Paul Newman hold the chihuahua. I mean, who doesn't want that? <laughs> oh, if we want to talk about, like, Paul Newman stunt casting, um, there's the Lady M in which he's a priest. He is the original hot priest. It's him and, like, Sophia okay. Loren. I'm very interested. Tell me more about this film. Oh, I don't remember much, except for the fact that he does wear a priest collar at some point. As a <laughs> terrible Catholic, I feel like this movie is right up my alley for no, no, we're talking like, shit. We're talking 60s Newman. We're talking about the blue eyes with the priest collar. And, like, he's, like, staring you down. Like, not just into your soul. And it's great. I have not seen this movie, and I very much want to. Like, it's, very, it's very much. terrible. Like, it's centered around <laughs> M that's, like, Sophia Loren, and at some point she ages, and, like, there's a lot of, like, romantic interludes, and, like, it's a little kooky. Like, I feel like it's almost, like, what's new pussycat vein of just kind of, like, it's kind of bonkers, but it's fun. And again, Paul Newman in a priest collar. I forget whether he actually is a priest or whether he's dressing up as one. He's just, but, he just decides to be one for- Yeah, for yeah. Like, <laughs> it might be one of the farcical elements of like, oh, well. But no, like, he's hot priest. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that, that is amazing. Um, I'm down I, for that, definitely. One other one I'll shout out, because I, I mostly think Cat on a Hot Tin Roof kind of overshadows the other Tennessee Williams movie that's out there. Um, I saw Sweet Bird of Youth for the first time a couple weeks ago, and it's so good. A, I don't know many men in the 1960s that were openly playing male prostitutes, uh, which is essentially what he is. Um, we talk, we talk about himbos. He literally is one. Um, he is a male sex worker in the 60s, which is pretty awesome. Uh, but but for me, and I keep talking about female leads because I think he had so many that were just fantastic. This is the one with Shirley Knight. Um, but really Shirley Knight is ancillary because it's all about freaking Geraldine Page who plays the boozy washed up movie star because there always is one in a Tennessee Williams film. Um, but she is just amazing and if you are like me and you were raised on Disney films then you will know that she is the voice of Madame Medusa from The Rescuers and it is very very awkward to watch her talk to Paul Newman and at a certain point she drops into that Madame Medusa voice and you're like oh god this is not Disney material um and fun fact it has her husband Rip Torn in it who looks like Anthony Franciosa so kudos to a young Rip Torn for playing uh for being in this movie, but it's a joy. It is awesome, and it has a great gif that I have used way too much in my my Newman uh, tweets. So yeah, it gets a it gets a shout out for me. Oh, young Rip Torn. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll do a young Rip Torn episode. <laughs> so this is just gonna veer off into just like, and you know who else is hot? Young Rip Torn. <laughs> but seriously, though. There's an energy there, man. <laughs> uh, Lauren, what are your underrated picks that don't involve think... young Rip Torn? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think. I was actually going to say Sweet Bird of Youth. That's that's definitely one of them. So I think that, yeah, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof gets a lot of love. That, that one doesn't. The other one 
But I mean, it's it's a known film. It isn't exactly a deep cut or anything. Yeah, but, um, I will say, I think Sean Levy in that biography kind of gives Sweeper to Youth like, kind of like cursory. It's like, ah, uh, it's just this this film that happens. Yeah, it, it tends to be like, so he did Cat on a Hot Tin Reef and then he did this other Tennessee Williams film or whatever, all right. Um, I'm gonna blame men for that. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna blame right. straight white men for that because just, of course, it's their fault. Um, uh, the the other one I think would be uh, someone uh, somebody up there likes me the movie about Rocky Graziano. I still and, need to see that one. Um, I haven't seen that yet, and I know I need to. And it's one of those that I I originally think saw it actually on TCM because it was one of those they like showing. Um, he's wonderful in it. Like uh, it's also Pierre um, Pierre Angeli is uh is in it as well and it's just a it's a really good sort of kind of quintessential boxing movie um and but it's a biopic and it, and it, again you know talking about newman as being that that sort of emotional elemental actor like he gets at those emotional elements of of, of a boxer who's otherwise you know fairly as as we know about a lot of boxing movies, fairly closed off, fairly non-expressive of his emotions, et cetera. But he actually does get into that. And and um, it's also heartbreaking because he gets beat up a lot. <laughs> and his like face is swollen half the time and everything. Like uh, but it's it's a good film and it's a very and it's a very good performance from him also. It's directed by Robert Wise too. So speaking of a speaking of a beat up Paul Newman, slap shot. That, you guys have seen it, yes? No. Oh my God. Ages ago, long time ago, yeah. Oh, Kristen, you need to see it. You need to see it. It's beautiful. Like it's because he's like aged, but like, again, like a questionable scotch. And like, he wears like turtlenecks and like jackets with fur collars and like really terrible 70s leather. And like, he's, and he has like a beat up mouth and like a lot of bleeding and bruises. And like, he's so creepy at like this one girl. <laughs> Diana, I think we might now be getting into like, Diana has some interesting um, <laughs> desires. All right, so, you know, yeah, it's their right. own. It turns, uh, into a, it turns into a Stefan routine where Diana's like, this movie has everything. Bleeding mouths. <laughs> <laughs> Creepiness. Fleetwood Mac. It has Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> but, um, no, yeah, no, I've been alone for too long. Um, but, yeah, with this role, though, it's just like he, like, it's funny because it's almost what you were saying that Sean Levy was saying of him being like not too invested or closed off. This is him like going to the wall. Like it's just like he's fearless in his performance as like this washed up hockey minor league captain like who was, is just terrible to women but also not the worst but pretty damn bad. And then like Terrible fashion sense, but that doesn't matter because again, it's all about the game, but it's a game that he cheats at. And like, it's just, there's so many layers to like, it's this very specific late seventies, gnarly, like it definitely, like the film itself, it's directed by George Roy Hill, who personally I adore because of the world of Henry Orient. 
But it's that whole thing where, wait, what was the thing I was thinking of? 1970s. It's very, I would say in the sphere of like animal house. Like it's very fratty and like really foul and filthy, but it's fun. And it's not quite like, like you don't have any like explicit rape like you do in Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> All right, that's it. A glowing I mean, endorsement. That is, that is just the tagline. Just like no explicit rape. Drum. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did want to th throw out before we, we start wrapping it up and totally put our foot in our mouths. Um, so, so Paul Newman was nominated several times for an Academy Award. Do you remember, first person to shout this out, what film he ended up winning for? So I'll start, I'll start going down the list. So he was nominated first in 59 for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, so did not win. He was nominated again in 62 for The Hustler, did not win. And he also did not win for HUD. <laughs> he did not win for HUD in 64. He was nominated in 68 for Cool Ham Luke, did not win. He was nominated in 69. Uh, this was actually for Best Picture because he directed the film Rachel Rachel, did not win. That's a great one, by the I, way. I want to see that. And we're yeah. talking Joanne Woodward's spinster. It's <laughs> really solid. Like, honestly, I would do Long Hot Summer followed by Rachel Rachel, even though that might be a bit of a whiplash in terms of sensibility. But it works in terms of, like, her, like, it's not as much of a whiplash in terms of her character and performance. But I'm going to guess Color of Bunny. You would be correct. She wouldn't Woo! win until 1987. Um, he was nominated as well in 82 for Absence of Malice and again in 83 for The Verdict. He'd actually get in 86 the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award, which is kind of like the honorary Oscar. We're glad you haven't died. We want to rectify this before you do die. And then the next year he did win for The Color of Money. He was also, or, so he got the honorary Oscar in 86. He got the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award in 94. But then he was nominated two other times after he won in 95 for Nobody's Fool and 2003 for A Road to Perdition. So oh, yeah. in my mind, he should have one, two, three, four Oscars. I don't know about you guys. He should have four. That sounds about right. Yeah. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. Um, I love Road to Perdition. That's another one that I don't... I remember it being really popular when it came out. And then it just kind of disappeared as like, oh, Tom Hanks movie. Uh, back when Sam Mendes cared about making movies and he wasn't stuck making Bond and war films. Um, so. <laughs> Speaking to the age of us and the generation, I don't know about you guys, but I remember the big point was that Jude Law was in it and he was bald. I remember that was a whole thing. I remember that too, yeah. <laughs> I remember that being a big thing, yeah. I remember vaguely that they were like, oh yeah. Paul Newman's in it, and I was, it was 2002, I was in high school, I was freshman year, I was like, who the hell cares about that? It's some movie where they're all in the rain, and they're wearing dower suits, I ain't going to see that, um, I was stupid, so, so yeah, yeah. Jude Law, I remember Jude Law being such a <laughs> in my heart, and in my being, he still is a thing, but, like, I, like, just remember, like, the Jude Law years, like, where he was in everything, like, that was, yeah. Road to Perdition was part of that. 
which is also one could make a really, really terrible theme comparative piece if you want to do a Paul Newman versus Jude Law in terms of the transitions from like old to new Hollywood and then new Hollywood to whatever the hell we're in now. <laughs> I can see that. I, you know what? I, you, need to, you need to make this a thing. We need to do something on that down the line. Um, that's too much for one episode. So uh, is there anything else we want to discuss before we totally get in trouble for saying something grossly inappropriate? <laughs> I think we've already said that. I think that Diana gave us the, the single tagline yeah, for the episode I'm... for just like to cap everything off. <laughs> the silver chalice and creepy. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm all for that. Here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a point. Okay, so you know how like with Hitchcock? <laughs> like, yes, I do. <laughs> but it's like, you know, with like, Vertigo and Marnie and Notorious and like so many of like you would say like the main central male protagonist who's attractive and or has an everyman quality that then that's how let's just say as an audience we have a little suspension of moral judgment let's say. <laughs> okay yeah. So I was like I feel like Paul Newman has like mastered that in terms of like, he's somebody that you watch and that he, like, if you, if you read the script on paper, you'd be like, ugh. But seeing him perform it, you're just kind of like, okay, this character, questionable, but I'll keep watching. But also yeah. I would not be in a room with him. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that, you know, going back to HUD, I think that that's very, that's very much what his, what at least part of his persona is, that he's, He's dangerous. He's not quite as dangerous as Marlon Brando, but you like watching him. You're compelled by him. You, you want to keep on watching whatever he's doing, even if it is something that you don't approve of or that you think is bad. You're like, I still want to see what happens to him and how this all plays out. Ding, um, ding, ding. I'm just second. <laughs> <laughs> see, we, now, now I mentioned Hitchcock. We did not mention Hitchcock's movie with Paul Newman, which I am oh, not right? going to go into oh. right now. Oh no! But, but torn curtain. That oh. is a movie that Hitchcock made with Paul Newman. So there. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually not seen because I'm a bad person. I was um, gonna say I haven't seen it either. I know of its have... existence, and I know that many people call it lesser. And I think that might be nice, Hitchcock. It it has. It's one of those films that the the central plot. Like I I have seen it numerous times, and I can I still cannot remember what the actual plot of the film is. Um, but there are, there, it's worth seeing, I think, because there are a lot of really interesting things that he does in it. And, and Newman's really good. Julie Andrews is really good. It's just a very odd kind of latter day Hitchcock film. You're never, um, I mean, I think that's the thing that always takes me back. We, we've spent this hour talking about Paul Newman's sexual dynamo. And then you said Julie Andrews. Mary Poppins, who I've, I've read her autobiography. I know she's many, made a, many a blue joke in her time. <laughs> it just feels like quite a dichotomy to be like <laughs> Paul Newman well, and Julie Andrews. Well, well famous SOB, correct? I, I love <laughs> SOB. Okay, so, okay, yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I mean, famous William Holden connection. 
Famously, I'm not certain whether it was Hitchcock or if it was a reviewer of the time period said that watching Paul Newman and Julie Andrews kiss in Torn Curtain was like watching your brother and sister make out. Um, um. So I don't quite agree. I do not quite agree. Uh, but but it is it's I, I do I like I like all Hitchcock films and for one reason or another. I actually do think the Torn Curtain has a lot of interesting stuff in it. But like I say, it's not it isn't a great film, but it's worth watching for them. I will get you it. I'm I mean I mean I have to now. Lauren, before we close out, how do you feel about ruining my life with this whole thing? This is all, I, I lay it at your feet. I am very proud, and I would encourage any of your listeners who have not seen The Long Hot Summer, particularly if they're female and uh, interested in men in any capacity, to go and watch The Long Hot Summer, because it will just, you know, it will alter your life, as it, as it has so many of ours. It made my, uh, my top three new discoveries of 2019 episode, which people can go back and listen to, uh, God, when we did that episode at the beginning of 2020, we had such stars in our eyes, and who would have thought that Paul Newman would have ushered in the apocalypse? Um, at least, at least as I argue it. Him and Chris Evans, thank you. Um, so, yeah. Um, well, th yeah, let me do the outro. Well, that's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. Uh, but before we say goodbye, Lauren, where can fans find and get in touch with you, read your work, all your other projects, promote as you will? Uh, okay, so you can get in touch with me on, on Twitter, primarily at LH Business, and I'm also on Instagram, mostly posting pictures of drinks that I am drinking. Uh, and, and a lot of my writing, I have my own blog, uh, suddenlyashotrunningout.com, and um, I also write and do podcasts for Citizen Dame, citizendamepod.com, which Kristen began and, and we have carried on doing, and it has been a lot of fun, and we continue to do that. So, yeah, check us out. And Diana Drum, what about you? Woohoo! Um, yeah, no, you can reach me at Diana D. Drum. Uh, on both the Insta and the Twitter. I also, uh, I'm the person who's behind all the retweets on female film critics, um, handle female critics. And yeah, no, my writing is around the internet. I haven't been writing as regularly, but if you feel like you wanna catch up on my portfolio, so to speak. I do have a portfolio, dianadrum.contently.com or something like that. And then there, <laughs> then you can always Google and find some fun interviews and some theme pieces and for a lot of fangirling. That's why we have this episode. There's always right. room for fangirling in classic film, especially. So uh, as always, you can uh, listen to Tinklish Business a variety of different ways. It's your radio, player FM, Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review on any of the sites you visit. Um, if you want to give us your coin, you can do that via Patreon that, at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We're also on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. And we have an Instagram you uh, can go see all the pictures that I post uh, on the Insta, which is at Ticklish Biz. So you can find out about episodes and see cool little photos that I post of classic film stuff. So that's going to close us out. We will be back next time. Bye.